We are, this morning, continuing in our study of the founding and the growth of the church in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 3. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, I believe you'll find that on page 1159, Acts 3. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus' ascension and a brief period of waiting while the disciples were waiting for what he told them that he would do. Uh, And then we saw the birth of the church in the giving of the Spirit, Uh, and the exponential growth, explosive growth, on the day of Pentecost. We're now moving through the early stages of the true growth of the church, starting in Jerusalem. As, of course, we know it it will grow from Jerusalem, and then out into Judea and Samaria, the, the regions right around that city, and then further to the ends of the earth, as we'll see all through the book of Acts. Now, last week, Luke gave us the picture of the ideal church, the church as it perhaps should be without blemish, without sin, without problem. But of course, over the next several chapters, we'll see the reality begin to crash in because sin exists. And the church, even if she were perfect, exists in a world that is not. We will see Luke address how the church in those first years dealt with twin pressures from inside the church. uh, The temptation, the, uh, the push of sin, the perils of sin, and from outside the church, the pressure of persecution pushing against the congregation, the body. And together, those two things will begin to shape how that ideal church exists in the real world. And then, of course, we'll have to think about how we deal with those twin pressures as well. The things that move us away from Christ, or at least try to. In addition, we're going to try and think through what it means, how do we interact with the people around us who don't know, maybe don't care, who Jesus actually was. For this morning, though, we need to think about how we respond to the Lord's still small voice in our daily lives. How do we, as individual members, as parts of the congregation, the body of Christ, how do we, in our chance encounters, if I can put it that way, how do we begin to recognize God's hand at work and participate with him? Hopefully align ourselves with him, participate with what he is already doing, right? Because we believe that he is at work. He was at work before we got here. He's at work now. He will be at work long after we're gone. He is at work. So how do we see what he's doing and get on board with where he is? As always, when we open God's Word, we need to ask for the Spirit to be present among us. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray and remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 3. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the truth with which you broke into our broken world. We pray that you would enlighten us by your Spirit. And yet, our sin will pervert anything that you give us. Any good gift, we will take and twist and use it for our selfish, sinful ends. And so, Jesus, we need your Spirit present with us now to restrain our sin, to lead us into righteousness, to lead us to faithfulness, to lead us to trust you more. Give us your grace and give us your Spirit this morning as we study your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 3. This is God's Word. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, or about three o'clock. 
And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at, at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive from something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat in the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Some of you know that I spent rather more than four years getting my undergraduate four-year degree, but during those years, um, I was involved with a couple of different college ministries in that time. Uh, and then, of course, after I graduated, I was an intern at another campus with Reformed University Fellowship, uh, Campus Crusade, and then RUF uh, as a student. And in, in both of those ministries, in both of those organizations, uh, we talked about what were sometimes called divine appointments. Now, both as a student and especially later as an intern, I would, I would schedule appointments with, with people, with some of the other students, with campus minister, whatever. Uh, as an RUF intern, especially, I'd plan meetings with my guys. Uh, you know, we'd get together for a meal or for coffee or soda in the afternoon, for Xbox games, whatever it was. Uh, I, but I would have these meetings where I would pray that the Lord would be at work through me, and speak through me, and encourage these young men. But I would also have meetings that I didn't plan at all. Running into someone at the student center, who I hadn't anticipated seeing, but hey, great chance to talk. Chatting with a cashier at the burger joint at the bank or wherever. Taking a walk and having a conversation with a neighbor. These divine appointments are the supposedly chance encounters, right? Chance encounters that at least could result in excellent deep conversations, but only if I was paying attention. And we've all run into someone that we hadn't seen in a while in some unexpected place, right? You're in, for example, the grocery store and you see someone that you haven't talked to in a while uh, and you get to chatting a little bit. And that conversation can go a couple of different ways. Normally, we're guarded, they're guarded. We hadn't talked in a while after all. There's some distance there, some reserve. While we might be happy to see each other, we're unlikely to dig beyond platitudes, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. Oh, how, how, what, you, what you been up to recently? Oh, you know, just working, spending time with the family. Uh, the kids are in, the, fill in the sport blank sport right now. Jenny's in ballet. We're just, we're pretty busy. So, you know, everything's great. You know how that conversation's going to go, even if you don't have somebody particular in mind that you're thinking of. You, that, that, that conversation is pretty formulaic, as it were. And you walk away from it, perhaps happy to have seen them, but neither of you being any more aware, genuinely aware of the other person or their situation than you were before you saw them. Now that's comfortable. It's easy. Because it's not particularly deep. 
The other possibility for how this conversation goes is more difficult. It is more difficult for a couple of different reasons. First, it requires our vigilance. You have to be on the lookout for how God might be using you all the time. There's a a movie about, I think, John Dillinger a couple of years ago where he's talking about robbing banks, and he says, I can hit any bank any time. They got to be ready at every bank all the time. We have to be ready everywhere all the time because we never know when God is going to provide an opportunity for one of these conversations. Now, that's hard because it requires being watchful in ways that, are, that take a good bit of energy, effort, particularly at first when you're, it's not a familiar, habitual thing, when you're having to remind yourself all the time, oh yeah, right, I have to be paying attention, I need to be listening better, I need to be... That's hard. But it's also hard because it requires us to be vulnerable, to be willing to talk about hard things and difficult situations in a real way, to push past the platitudes. Not settling for the pat answer, but leaning into the awkwardness of real life. Being genuinely interested in the person in front of you. To listen well. To respond with God's grace. That's what we meant when those ministries that I was in talked about divine appointments. Times of genuine connection when we can see the grace of God working in someone's life. Most often, those divine appointments happen not with the people that we were pursuing and praying for directly. Those meetings were important and we saw the Lord that work in those as well. But they were the appointments that I made. The divine appointments were the ones that I couldn't have planned even if I tried. The ones that relied on situations and circumstances far beyond my knowledge, never mind my ability to massage into a shape that was comfortable for me. In our passage this morning, Peter and John are going to the temple at the time of the afternoon prayers. I said it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and God had an appointment for them. Now, a little background so that we can kind of better understand what's going on here. It was common practice in that day to bring those who were physically disabled to the temple grounds so that they could ask for financial help, alms. This was the only way they could survive. It was considered an act of righteousness for the family or the friends to bring the person to the temple. It was also considered an, a righteous act for people to give alms to those who were unable to work, as this man clearly was. He couldn't even stand. This was understood. And so each of the different gates into the temple would have had at least one and probably a lot more than one uh, person asking for alms all the time every day no matter what but as we can see though it was considered righteous to give having to ask for alms was no more respectable position to be in then than it is now if you can imagine it it would have been if you could imagine what it would have been like to be this man it would have been mind-numbingly dull all day every day at least six and probably seven days a week from sunup to sundown this man sat in one place and asked everybody who passed for a little bit of money though it was necessary for him to have that to live it would have been soul crushing to know that this was what he had to look forward to for the rest of his life And almost worse, though he sat in the very gate into the temple, because he was disabled, he was not allowed to enter 
the temple at all. Not even into the outermost court, the court of the Gentiles. He couldn't worship God with the rest of the covenant community. Even the Gentiles, those who were not the children of God, even they could enter more into the temple, that outer court, than this man could. He had congenital damage. He was born lame. He had never walked. It was believed in that time, and let's be honest, many other times, including today, often, it was believed that there was a straight-line connection back from physical infirmity and even simple illnesses to sin that had directly caused it. Think of Job's friends. What sin have you done that God did this to you? You sinned, your parents sinned, somebody sinned, and therefore you're suffering in this way. There was great spiritual shame attached to this. He had never been able to worship. Remember, he was born with this injury, so he had never been able to worship with God's people in the temple. For him, this day was just like every other day. Sit in the gate, ask for alms, sometimes receiving them, always seen as less than everyone else, seen as deserving of contempt because it was assumed that this illness, this injury that he had was the direct result of someone's sin. Put yourself in his position as much as your imagination will allow you. Feel the monotonous sameness of every day always with a constant note of shame and pity poured out on you with no hope that anything would ever change. This man, in his shame, kept his head down as he begged. And then Peter and John come along, and of course this guy has no idea who they are, so he asks them, as he does everybody else, for some alms. And they stop and they look at him. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze upon him as did John and said, look at us. From the man's reaction, this is probably not an unheard of thing. Uh, Just as there are now, there there were people then who were willing to give but wanted to be seen doing it. Not just seen by God, but seen by the person who received so that they could acknowledge, thank you for this gift, I, I very much appreciate it. And they would get some benefit from that. They didn't just want God to see them. They want the person to acknowledge and understand the gift, the indebtedness. Of course, that description of interested giving doesn't apply to Peter and John at all. But this man couldn't have known that. Couldn't have known that they wouldn't treat him as part of the wallpaper to be ignored or perhaps drop a coin or two in in the hope that God would reward them for their giving. Effectively seeing this man as a righteousness gumball machine drop a couple of coins in get your righteousness out going about your day get your holiness points instead they treated him as a person made in God's image they actually saw him now before we go any further let me pause the story here Peter and John were not as far as we know they were not coming to the temple with the intention of healing this one beggar out of the tens hundreds more thousands that were around Uh, that wasn't their intention as we saw last week they were continuing to go to the regular services of the temple devoting themselves to prayer times habitual that were the the habitual times that God's people gathered to pray together gathered to worship him this was the ordinary time of prayer the afternoon prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon I think it's safe to assume that this was not the only man asking alms that afternoon, but the Lord intended to demonstrate His sovereign power in this man. 
Peter and John were paying attention to the Lord's prompting and to the circumstances surrounding them, even though they didn't know what they were looking for or waiting for. How easy it would have been for them to just blow right past. How easy it would have been maybe to mumble something, avoid this man's eyes, because they didn't have any money, which is what he needed and wanted. How easy it would have been to say, oh, sorry, I, I don't have anything, and move on. How easy that would have been. Ignore him completely, but they don't. Following the prompting of the Spirit, they stop and they talk to him. Peter tells him, I'm sure, in a way that disappointed him, I have no silver or gold. Well, darn. All right. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, this is just not how people talk today. In the name of so-and-so, I tell you, what, even, what does that even mean? We, we're familiar with the phrase, right? We, we're, in the name of Jesus, I say, we know the phrase. But what does that mean? What are we saying when we say that? Perhaps the only time that we really use that phrase is in prayer, when we tag that onto the end of our prayers, asking that our prayers be heard, in Jesus' name I ask these things. Whatever we actually believe, we often act as if in Jesus' name is just some magic words to tack onto the end of your prayer so that it will work. But what's actually intended here? How are we to understand these words, especially since we are commanded to pray in Jesus' name, how are we to understand what is going on with this? Throughout the Bible, using a whole range of different metaphors, we are told that we, as God's people, represent God in the world. Beginning all the way as far back as the creation account, before even the fall happens, Adam and Eve were to be the vice regents ruling over all of creation in God's place. In God's, as God's appointed governors. Through the offices in the Old Testament, through the offices of priest and king and especially of prophet, and moving right the way through into the New Testament where the image is most commonly that of an ambassador uh, sent from God to the world so to speak for him with his authority, there is this series of images of how we represent God to the world. As his people, in some sense, we represent God and his interest to the world. We speak for God with his authority. To use a modern example, think of a legal power of attorney. Someone, usually a lawyer, sometimes a close family member, uh, is granted authority to act, whether in everything or in some specific ways, limited ways, to, is granted the authority to act as if they were the person who gave them the authority. Now, this is not exactly the same image as an ambassador or a regent, but it's close enough, and it's as close as I could come in our kind of modern context, right? This is someone, when we speak to people in God's name, when we pray to God in Jesus' name, we are saying, I am speaking for him with his complete authority as, and as if he were speaking to you, and if he were here speaking to you, he would say what I'm saying to you right now. That's what we're saying. It is a massively weighty thing to speak for God, to claim the authority to speak to people on God's behalf. We are much too glib with that phrase, and even more with the reality behind it. We just don't think about it. We need to be more aware of what we are saying, what we are praying, 
that for which we claim divine authority and approval. But here, Peter, speaking in Jesus' name, commands this man to get up and walk. And he did. Luke wants to make sure that we get this. I mean, they say anything that's repeated in Scripture you should really pay attention to. Pay attention to this. Luke tells us three times in two verses this man was up and walking. Look at verses 8 and 9. And leaping up, he... uh, Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Three times in two verses, he was walking and leaping and praising God. There was no question about this being a miracle. This was the same man. The people who were there who worshipped in that temple every day recognized him as the one who'd sat day in and day out for years by the gate, who had congenital birth defect damage, he'd never walked, and now here he's obviously walking. And not just walking, but leaping. And everyone who saw it was amazed and filled with wonder. This is shocking to the man. It is shocking to everyone who saw him, but it is simply a demonstration of the same authority that Jesus had when he was on the earth and that he continues to have now that he has ascended into heaven. Jesus' authority healed this man. That's the event of the miracle. Now, as we saw in chapter 2 with the giving of the Holy Spirit, Luke's pattern typically is he'll give us the bare bones account of the miracle and then we get an explanation of it from Peter or John or whoever is there, Paul who's there to, is preaching uh, through, through the sermon given to those people there. Uh, and we're going to look at that uh, next week as we see Peter's exa- uh, explanation of this. But then following the explanation, we see the results. What happened as a result of this event and this sermon? And we'll see that in two weeks at the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, see how, uh, how, what happened over the next days and weeks after this event. But this is the event. What do we do with this event? Are we supposed to draw from this that true Christians should be able to command miraculous healing anytime and all the time? We have the same spirit in us that Peter did. Shouldn't I be able to say, stand up and walk and have somebody's legs fixed? Well, no. Obviously, that isn't the point of this passage. Never mind that that isn't our experience. That doesn't fit with the rest of the book of Acts, even. Clearly, the point is not that we should be able to heal people or even that Jesus will heal people through us at the drop of a hat. So what is the point? How do we understand this miracle and what's going on here? As I say, we're going to see more of the explanation next week and the results the week after. But while we think about just the the event itself, we are tempted to see ourselves in the role of Peter or even maybe John. But We have to recognize that we have far more of a connection, not with the guys who were God's conduit for healing, but with the guy who needed healing. We have more affinity to the man who was injured. He was born lame, born without the ability to walk at all, and in the same way we are born in sin, born without the ability to please God even a little bit. And we need to be healed the same way that he was healed, as Peter will explain in his sermon, by faith in the authority and work in the name of Jesus. We need to be healed. 
That language has become common, has become familiar. We're no longer surprised by it. But here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Look at verse 6. Peter tells this man, commands him really, to do the precise thing that he is not able to do. He's never been able to walk. He will never be able to walk. It is an established fact that he cannot walk. He has never walked. And yet Peter commands him to walk. This is how God comes to us. As I say, we like to identify with Peter here, the one who stands as the hand of God in this situation, but it is far better for us to understand ourselves as the one needing healing than the one providing it. We have a congenital heart defect. We are born broken by sin. Now think about children. We love children. We like to talk about innocence of children and babies especially. Oh, they're so wonderful and they're cute and they're innocent and everything's great all the time. But here's the thing. That's not wrong. They are sweet and we do love babies and we should. But neither is it it complete. We, every human being, no matter their age, no matter how cute they are, every human being is born with a congenital heart defect. Our hearts are full of sin from the day of our conception. Our hearts are filled with sin from the day of our conception. We are broken people who will never be capable of pleasing God. We cannot. We are commanded to obey Him, to keep His law perfectly, never to break it in even the slightest aspect of the smallest intention in your heart. But we are incapable of doing what He commands us to do. In our sin, we cannot please Him. We cannot. Unless. And that's the whole gospel right there in that one word. Unless. We cannot please God unless He heals us first. The command comes first. Obey perfectly in every aspect of everything you do say or even think. And then He heals us. And then we obey. We don't obey so that He heals us. He heals us so that we can obey even a little bit. And then we obey in delight. The gospel is not the command. It is the healing and the resulting obedience from the healing. What do I mean? Now, the healing part is obvious. Apart from Christ, our hearts are inclined to evil continually, without exception. He heals us and our hearts, heals our hearts and draws us to himself. And we're familiar with that part of the gospel. God heals sinful people, right? Great. Good news. Excited. But then what? What happens then? We got our fire insurance. Everything's fine. We can go do what we want. No. Are we simply to continue as we were, just, you know, without that heart defect anymore? No. This man, when he was healed, what happened? He immediately leapt up and he entered the temple and praised God. The first thing that he did went in with Peter and John and he worshiped God. We are not healed for the sake of healing. We are healed so that we can and will obey and glorify God by our actions. That obedience is not of us any more than the healing is is something that we accomplished. It is the Holy Spirit continually working in us and through us to make us more and more in the image of Christ our Savior. 
But we are nevertheless healed of our sins so that we can with great joy obey the God who healed us. I think we struggle with this because we think of obedience as the opposite of joy, as the opposite of faith. We think joy is found in complete libertinism. I can do anything I want and therefore I'll be joyful. I have no restrictions whatsoever. Of course, the classic illustration is the fish wanted to be out of water, wanted to be up on land. Is he free or is he dead? Complete lack of limitations is not freedom and joy. Living as God created us to be, that is freedom and joy. We are freed to be who God made us to be. What God commands of us is good for us. If you've never been able to walk and have been ostracized from everything in your culture because of your inability to walk, obeying the command to walk is the greatest joy you could imagine. He leapt for joy at being able to walk and immediately entered the temple of God and worshiped the Lord. John Berridge was a pastor in England in the 1700s and he wrote a masterful summary of the life of a Christian with respect to the commands of the Lord. Here's what he said. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Though we are commanded to obey the Lord, it is impossible for us to do so apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. But once He has healed our congenital heart defect, made us whole again through Christ's finished work, through the Holy Spirit applying Christ's work to us, filling us with His grace, once He has done that, then we find our greatest joy only in pursuing faithfulness to His good purposes through His commands. If you are His today, if you are His because He loves you, by His grace, He will work the true joy of faithful obedience to Him into your heart. He will. The Holy Spirit is doing that work now by His grace. And He will grow you in joy because He is growing you in faithfulness. Because He loves you enough to lead you to what is best for you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the wings that you have given us and pray that you would lead us to rest entirely on you. Make us faithful, Lord. Even as you've commanded us to be, make us be in truth what you have declared us and commanded us to be. Make your name great. Glorify yourself as you heal us. Cause us to worship you with the whole of our lives. Let us leap and walk and run and dance for joy as we worship you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.